You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Go ahead and grab your Bible and join me in Psalm 123. Psalm 123. We are uh, spending a summer in the Psalms, just taking a, uh, taking a psalm and mining out of it the encouragement that uh, God has given to us through the ages. Um, I don't know if there actually is a genre for this. There is distinctly something known as dad jokes. You guys are familiar with dad jokes, right? I don't know if there is such a thing as dad uh, lyrics, right? And dad lyrics are uh, song sound bites taken completely out of context from mostly songs in the late 80s and early 90s that when your kids say something or do something, you throw out this one little song lyric uh, to follow. My, my kids are, have become all too familiar with it and they know sound bites of songs that they have never heard before um, uh, in response to their their life, and it's something that they they almost kind of now know is coming, right? Like they, uh, you know, if, uh, Preston gets his paycheck, or uh, you know, Evelyn pulled a tooth and and got a uh, got a dollar or whatever. They're going to hear the line, money, 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 right? Like the, it's going to sh- it's coming. They they know that it's coming, uh, and it's just this set rhythm of uh, life that I find funny. I don't know if anybody else finds funny, but the fact that I get the same look that I get when I give a dad joke makes it all the more you know desirable for me to do it right right Ross do you feel these feel these kind of things right it just wells up inside of you uh, to be a part of the rhythm in it uh, and we've entered into the part of Psalms that was intended to be kind of like that the expected rhythm of what does it look like uh, for the Jewish person as they are approaching the temple and ascending the hill of the Lord, as it was uh, referred to, and what were they to be doing to kind of prep their heart for it, the expectations that would be coming as they would be uh, traveling in, whether it be for one of the Jewish festivals like Passover or Yom Kippur or one of those, or whether it was just a pilgrimage that they were doing to go and uh, make a sacrifice at the temple. And these became known as the Songs of Ascent, or a Song of Ascent. And so, as you're reading through um, the Psalms, and remember we've said that there's a little bit of a misnomer when you're reading Psalms. We read, you know, we go to chapter, whatever, uh, 123, and then we read verse 1 as though that's the beginning of the Psalm. Uh, But the, the Psalm actually begins with the subscript of the description. Sometimes that was telling who it was that wrote it, whether this was a, a psalm of David, or maybe and sometimes what the occasion was. It doesn't always have it there, but it was in there in, in Scripture. Uh, and this is the same thing. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 123, and it says that it is a song of ascent. Uh, and there is, in our life and in our heart, a constant discipline necessary to reorient our hopefulness on the Lord. A constant discipline that is necessary for us to reorient our hopefulness. We are all filled with a sense of hopefulness. I hope tomorrow's going to be good. I hope this meal that I'm fixing to eat is going to taste good, right? Uh, you know, I hope this movie that I'm fixing to see is going to be good. We are always, every day, always pursuing hopefulness. 
And it is a discipline in the Christian life to reorient our hopefulness, not on things that can actually not satisfy, but on the Lord our God. And this is Psalm uh, 123 leading us to that. Read it with me. Uh, Psalm 123, verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servant look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until He is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. This is the Word of the Lord. Um, This past week... Uh, we got to see uh, some much-anticipated imagery in the scientific world. Does anybody know what we got to see this week? Yeah, James. Yeah, Jim's over there geeking out about it, right? The James Webb uh, Telescope, which was launched, I don't remember what, uh, probably six months ago or something like that. Um, you know, we all have seen images from the Hubble Space Telescope, right? Just incredible images of nebulas and galaxies and, you know, images of space that we just never could have conceived were there uh, and totally expanded our understanding about the science of what the universe and its construction. And the James Webb Telescope was new technology, new everything else. And this week, the first image and couple of images from that. Dropped. Some of those images were the, they they pointed at the same spot that the Hubble Space Telescope had been and took basically a better picture. So, uh, you guys remember when cell phones first got cameras on them, and there was absolutely no reason for that to exist because it was awful, right? Every picture looked like it was from Minecraft, you know. Uh, and so. Uh, and then all of a sudden now, you know, I feel like my phone is pretty fancy, but then there's people that got those ones that got like six lenses on the back of them, right? Uh, and, uh, and they take super... Cr- that, was, that was one of those kind of things. But the, the, the picture that made the most splash out of all the first released pictures of it um, looks interesting, um, but you may not really actually know what exactly all is going on in the mix of this picture. So this picture right here, if you take a grain of sand, one single grain of sand, and you hold it at arm's length out at the night sky, uh, this picture is the same size as that grain of sand. And they pointed it at a spot in space that from our perspective is dark. There's nothing there, right? And as you can see, there's a whole lot that's there in that one little speck, that one little spot. Uh, Everything that you see that is uh, white and semi-roundish, especially these ones that have like like a sun flare, six-sided sun flare, that's going to be, from what I understand, stereotypical of the way that the telescope is designed. It's going to have these six 
six-point uh, flares off of close-in stars. So all of those stars uh, that are there are visible. If you have a normal telescope and you look through at that spot, you'd be able to see those white spots. But everything else that you see in that picture is not a star. Those are all galaxies, entire galaxies. And the reason they pointed it at this spot is there's, you see this little spot right here in the middle? That little uh, star slash galaxy that's right in the middle of it, and if, I don't know if you can see it from the distance where you're at. All of these, there's some things that look like smudges around the outside edge of that. What that is, is basically this, uh, the, I don't know if it's a star or whatever it is that's right there in the middle, is functioning as a natural telescope. So it's literally bending space by its gravitational pull and pulling light from further out around it and warping it. That's the reason why those things look like smudges. So literally all of these things that we can see are incredibly far away, but all of those smudges are literally on the edge of the universe. We're seeing out... I mean, okay, just again, think about this for the perspective. Like, when we see the Milky Way during moose season and it looks like a cloud across the sky, that's us looking through our own galaxy, right? That little dot right there is an entire one of those and everything that is going on in it. The magnitude of that one grain of sand held up in the sky, and we think in every single sphere of all of that you can conceive of that, it absolutely is inconceivable, right? Cannot wrap my mind around any of that. And it is those heavens, those expanses, that majesty and that power to which the psalmist writes as he is crying out for the help of the Lord, to you I lift up my eyes, you who are enthroned in the heavens. I oftentimes talk about the fact that we as modern day Christians oftentimes have our theology based upon Tom and Jerry, right? Like hell is the place where it's got the stalactites and the lava and that kind of thing, and that's hell, right? And heaven is the clouds and the angel and the harps and those kind of things. Uh, and God is pictured as sitting on, you know, more of a picture of Mount Olympus uh, than what the scriptures describe his majesty as. That that one patch of uh, sand sized sky that contains all of this is nothing more than one small tile of the mosaic of the throne room of God. The expanse of his majesty, the expanse of his glory. The reasons why the psalmist writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. And David in another place says, when I think of your heavens, the works of your fingertips, the sun and the moon and the stars, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And it is to this God, enthroned in the heavens, that the psalmist writes to reorient our hopefulness, to reorient our direction, to change the way that we are viewing our everyday life as we ascend the hill of the Lord, as we are approaching Him in worship. 
to lift up our eyes to Him. The intentional act of looking for God. Remember I said that this was, a, there is a constant discipline necessary to reorient our hopefulness on the Lord. There is, bent in our heart, a desire always to find hopefulness, to find satisfaction, to find joy and meaning. And we find that, or we, I should say, we look for that in all kind of things. We are always looking for something to fill our hope. We look for it in a good meal. We look for it uh, in, a, in a good conversation. We look for it in a nice song. We look for it in a beautiful painting. We look for it in a vacation. We look for it in a relationship. We look for it in a vocation. We look for it... Uh, in the experiences with our children. We look for hopefulness in all of these things. And every time we do it, we are lifting up our eyes to the movie theater and the grocery store and the restaurant and the, the boy or the girl or the child or the activity. We are lifting up our eyes to those things, expecting them to fill our hopefulness. And the psalmist tells us to you... I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the expanses that boggle the mind. The Lord's enthronement is expansive. And it is to God who is enthroned in these heavens that we are called to look for our hope. And to do so, or to look for our hope in any other well, in any other source, is to be crawling through the desert and seeing the mirage and approaching it with the hopefulness of satisfaction only to find dust. No matter how good of quality of dust it is, it is still dust. And how are we to do this? Or what is it to look like for us to be doing this? He gives a pretty straightforward illustration. He says, Behold, as the eyes of the servant look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to you, or look to the Lord our God, until He is gracious to us. Until He is gracious to us. Many people, myself included, if I'm, uh, if I'm not fighting against it, have the, uh, the inclination to believe that the Bible uh, is a book of rules. That that is ultimately what the Bible is. right? It's a, a, a guidebook of do this and don't do this. Live this way, don't live this way. Act this way, don't act this way. Feel this way, don't feel this way. And to get off of that then is to invoke somehow the wrath of God. Is, uh, and that's the primary thing that the Bible is. And there's lots of Christians that live their life as though that's what the Bible is. And so, when we look to the Lord through that lens... We are looking, through, or looking to the Lord as though He is constantly on edge with what we are supposed to do. So we look to Him as though He is either going to strike us for doing something wrong or order us and boss us around because that's who He is and that's what He does and that's what I'm supposed to just listen to, right? That's the rule of it. And it is tempting to read this passage through that kind of a lens. 
Behold, the eyes of the servant look to his hand of his master. And if that hand twitches, you jump. If the hand twitches, you you rush to see. What do you need? What do you want me to do? How do I need to obey? How, what do I need to? Uh, how do I need to respond? As the eyes of the maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. But the defining quality of this is not God's expectation of doing as though that's the end goal. We are looking to the Lord our God, not for Him to order us around, but for Him to be... What does it say? Huh? Merciful, gracious, to show us favor... That the inclination of God is not one of the the all-expansive God, the God that sits in the universe, the God that knows every single one. You know, we call this the Milky Way. He's got a name for every one of those, and every star, and every grain of sand on every planet, and every corner of the universe. And that expansive God, who we could say with clear understanding, has all the right to say to us, "Do this." We're turned to dust. But we're not looking to Him for that. We're looking to Him for Him to be gracious to us. For Him to be gracious to us. And then He has the prayer in verse 3. Be gracious to us. The Lord is described as commanding us with His blessing. That this is not just a, uh, a willingness and a readiness to be obedient. It's a willingness and readiness to see His blessing. God is seeking you to grant favor, blessing, purpose, mercy. It is His bend. It is the nature of who He is. And verse 3 is asking for it. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. I teach fairly often on the principle of neediness, which is a very far concept for us as as Alaskans. We don't like being needy. We do what we want, when we want, how we want. And we don't need anybody else to do it, right? That's why when they make reality shows about Alaska, it's one dude or one chick out in the woods by themselves, right? They don't make reality shows about whole communities working together. It's one guy, one girl out there figuring it out on their own. I'm not needy for nothing. I can do it myself. And the great challenge for that is it works against our ability to be able to actually experience the goodness of God. Neediness is an, ex- is an essential expression of faith. If you claim to have faith in the Lord our God and yet you do not claim to be needy, you do not actually have much faith in Him. Right? Uh, it's the idea of uh, you know the, the person that's uh, a prepper. You guys know what a prepper is, right? Somebody that's prepping for the whatever zombie apocalypse, end of days, whatever, whatever it is, right? They've got years and years worth of food, 
And they say, oh yeah, man, I don't want... You know, if you ask them, you say, uh, how much faith do you have in the U.S. food supply system? And if they say, I got all the faith in the world, man. I think the U.S. food supply system is going to be great forever. There's not ever going to be any problems. I'm going to look at you and go, I don't believe you. Otherwise, you have a really weird hobby, you know? Uh, and this is the reality of us in our faith when we look to our own ability to do good things, to live the way that we think we believe we're supposed to, and say, no, I think I'm doing enough. And then to say, do you believe, have faith in God to save you? You're like, absolutely, of course. You're going, I don't believe you. Because the sense of neediness that we have as Christians grows exponentially the more and more you realize of God's goodness. Because if this is just an experience of the vastness of God's creativity, and the Bible describes God in terms of His expansive goodness, kind of relative to this, and I look at my goodness and I go, it doesn't anywhere close to compare. And if I have to be perfect to be in relationship with God, I'm in a lot of trouble. I'm in a lot of trouble. And so we look to the hand of God for His graciousness. That He would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Neediness is throughout uh, the the New Testament. It's one of the central things that Jesus teaches. He doesn't use the word neediness, but He does use the concept as He talks about things like uh, when people came to Him and He says, your faith has healed you. When they came to Jesus... They didn't come with a sense of like, Jesus, I want you to be my homeboy. I want you to be my buddy. I want to be, you know, have notoriety and have Jesus respond that way. They came with utter brokenness, utter need, and his response to those things was graciousness. And it's fascinating to me as I read the New Testament because it even bleeds into the neediness of others of how it. Uh, how it blesses you. You remember the, the time when Jesus is preaching in the enclosed house and the crowd is just mashed around Him. There's no room for anything. And there's this one guy that's been lame since birth. He's never been able to walk. His legs don't work. And his friends try to get in because they know Jesus. They've heard this Jesus guy can heal people. And they want to go in. They want to go in. They, they try and they try and they can't get in. So what do they do? They scale the house, rip open the roof, and drop the guy in from the top. And do you remember what Jesus says in the midst of that? He's talking to their, the friends. And He says, their faith healed you. That's pretty incredible. And it was all about need. This picture of neediness is what He's saying we are to discipline ourselves in our hopefulness towards the Lord, our reorienting our hopefulness towards the Lord in a sense of defining our neediness not based upon what we can attain, but what only God can give. The prayer is, God, be gracious to us. 
Be gracious to us. Why? Because we are greatly filled with contempt. We're filled with it. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Verse 4 tells the reason why uh, we are to be reminded as we are entering into worship, why is it that I need my heart reoriented to the goodness and faithfulness of God? And he gives two examples that this imagery of um, sarcasm, uh, this, this imagery of a verbal assault that is coming against this pilgrim that is seeking the Lord, it fills their heart with contempt. It jades their outlook on life. We don't know, you know, it's not giving a specific, like this is coming from family or friends or whatever, but in the Jewish context, this were a downtrodden people who were wanting to worship God in every context around them, assaulted against them. And it says that this scoffing, this contempt of their soul, came from two places. The first was, he says, with the scoffing of those that are at ease. This is those who live their life according to a worldly uh, obsession. That all that I need I will find in this world. I'll find my purpose, my meaning, my happiness, my joy, my satisfaction. I'll find love. I'll find importance. I'll find power. Everything I need I will find in this world. And in that sense, they live, as he says, at ease. And they look to those who look outside of this world in scoffing. What do you mean as a Christian? You, you don't find the pleasures of this world to be enough. That you find them pale in comparison to the promises of your so-called God. That there is a growing sense in the world in which we live of what has been known as classic or popular humanism. It's the idea that uh, man ultimately is God and our experience of the physical is all that there is. So, enjoy it however it feels good to you. As ultimately, if it does, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, have at it. And to not agree with that is to be scoffed. Because they live at ease. If I want it, I can have it. If I can put my hands on it, it's mine. I can live the way that I want to live. And a Christian heart that looks up to the heavens and sees God enthroned upon His eternal throne and sees His power and sees His glory and submits to Him, looks beyond this world and looks beyond the things that we can put our hands on and says, I know that this stuff is not enough. It won't bring ultimate satisfaction. And there's a scoffing that comes from that. And our soul is greatly filled with this contempt because of that. But the second kind is one that's a little bit more subtle. It says, Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease, living a worldly mindset. But secondly, our soul is greatly filled with contempt, uh, with the contempt of the proud. And this is those that live their ultimate satisfaction not purely in the physical, but primarily in the intellectual. 
that the idea that not just experiencing or feeling the world around us is our ultimate satisfaction, but knowing and the growing of knowledge. The sense of, I have now conquered it. And it's one of those things, it's a subtle thing, and it's a challenging thing, I think, within the scientific world. That there's this desire to continue to grow, to know more, to gain more knowledge, to gain more understanding, for the mysteries to no longer be mysteries, right? That's, that's part of what the scientific process is, is to be able to answer the question, why is it like this? Why does it do this thing, right? But there is a great danger in that knowing is that once you cross over that, if this is all there is, even this, if this is all there is, if all that there is is something that we can see and touch and put our hands around, then to know it is to have power over it. And it loses its mystery. And ultimately it loses its wonder. And it is the reality, the culmination of that, uh, that fruit from the tree of life where He says, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve looks and she sees that the tree was good for food and a pleasure to the eyes and able to make one wise. And she took and ate of it and we know the end of that story. See, it's an interesting thing that I, as somebody who deeply loves God, believes that He is the Maker and Creator of all things, I look to this, and I, I read the scientific information on how we got it, and what it causes me to do is be in more awe and wonder of who God is. The splendor of His power. And the incredible nature that God cares a rip about me. But if there is no God, then all we got is a fancy picture. That's all we got. Cool. There's more galaxies. Whoop whoop. We're going to die and turn to dust, and our name and memory shall be forgotten. If this is all there is, there is no such thing as evil. That's a pretty scary thought. If this is all there is, every heinous act you've ever read about, every grotesque thing you've ever learned of, every painful experience you've ever had in your soul wasn't bad. It just was. Same as this. But to the expanse of the universe this small mosaic tile of the throne room of God. We cry out to the God who knows our name. And not only knows our name, but sent His one and only Son to substitute His life for us so that we could be reconciled to Him. Why would God care? Because His nature is to be bent towards being gracious to us. We can rob ourselves of that by pursuing worldliness. And we can rob ourselves of that by pursuing knowledge as though it puffs us up in pride. Or we can look to the Lord. Lift up my eyes to You who are enthroned in the heavens. 
and cry out, as verse 3 says, Be gracious to us, O God. Reorienting our heart to our true neediness. To who we really are. To the fact that we really are powerless in the grand scheme of things. You have as much power to save yourself as you have the ability to move all of those dots. Same power. It's, we don't have it. But the one who hung those dots in the grain of sand in the sky, He knows you and He loves you. It's an almost inconceivable thought. Or as David said, when I look to the heavens and I consider the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, who am I that you are mindful of me? Who am I that you love me? And yet when we question, does He? God answers us with Jesus. That's an incredible, incredible thought. Let's pray. God, thank You so much um, for the beauty of an image from a little telescope floating in outer space that points to the edge of the universe and declares Your glory to us this morning. Lord, forgive us for the things that we have pursued in hopefulness that were just a mirage, that really were a lie. Help us to lift up our eyes to You enthroned on the heavens. Cause us to cry out in prayer as the servant looks to the hand of his master saying, Be gracious to us, O God. Be gracious. In this world filled with hard things, You are good. So help us to reorient our heart on our hopefulness in You. Your faithfulness to carry us through all the days that You have ordained for us. We love You, God. It's Your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.